I'm Dick Moberg, and for more than 40 years, I've been developing technology to advance our understanding of the injured brain. I've had a chance to work with some of the leading minds in the field of neuromonitoring, including physicians, researchers, and entrepreneurs. I want to share their stories with you in the form of a weekly podcast so you can stay current on the latest developments in the field and the innovative people behind them. This is my neural network. I'm Dick Moberg, and today's guest is Dr. John Gottman from the Montreal Neurological Institute at McGill. And he's a professor in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery and a member of the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Gottman is internationally known in the field of epilepsy research and is considered by most to be the father of automated seizure detection. And certainly he's one of the earliest pioneers in this uh, field. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You're one of the very few people I know who's successfully gone from a, a scientist to an entrepreneur to a business leader and then to back to a scientist, and you just told me you were a scientist the whole time. So I want to give our listeners a little uh, an idea of, uh, of what that journey was like. So, um, let, so let's start back at the, uh, at, at the beginning, at least from my point of view, where I was a graduate student at Penn, and uh, we got in the mail uh, a tape from you. Uh, this is in the mid-70s when I was working on my PhD with uh, Dick Harner, one of the early epileptologists in Philly. We uh, we just gotten a PDP-11. We're very excited about uh, trying this algorithm out. So that was a long time ago. <laughs> and, uh, can you uh, can you give us a sense of uh, how did you get into this? And, uh, you know, with that. Uh, okay, sure. I, I mean, the, the history is a little, I, I'll give, uh, go far further back because the history may be of some interest, at least it's fun. Um, I was trained as a, uh, an engineer, electrical engineer, uh, with a specialization in computer science in, in France at the University of Paris. And um, I uh, obtained a degree in 1969. Then I went to study some more to get a master's degree in computer science at uh, Dartmouth College in the U.S. And... Um, where I worked already on the PDP-9, that was a computer dedicated to uh, graphics in particular. And um, then um, I, uh, I, I was supposed to return to France and do my military service, but there was a uh, exchange program between France and Canada and Quebec in particular that allowed me to uh, uh, very legally to uh, spend a year and a half in Canada in the Canadian university instead of doing my military service. So I went and found a place at McGill University and uh, working in the computer center. There were not many computers in these days. And um, they gave me some very, very boring projects about accounting and uh, things like that. And I asked the guy whether, I said, I'm going to be here for a year, year and a half. Could I find some more interesting projects? And he said, well, you can go around, look at McGill. As you have to stay at McGill, but you can find places that have computers. And if they want to take you, um, that's fine with me. So I went around, there was something like 10 or 12 computers at McGill University, and that was at the end of 1971. And uh, I ended up at the Montreal Neurological Institute where uh, Dr. Pierre Gluer had just acquired a PDP-12 computer, which was a laboratory dedicated computer for data acquisition and things like that, um, and uh, for the neurophysiology laboratory. And he needed somebody to program it because of course the computer didn't do anything on its own. 
and I arrived there and it looked like it was a fun place and um, so I started to work there essentially and uh, to do EEG analysis to record EEGs first and then try to analyze them so that was 19 about 1972 um, it took me about a year, I think, to realize that I was at the Montreal Neurological Institute, which is a very famous institute in this area. I had no, abs absolutely no idea where I was. I was having tea with Dr. Penfield without knowing who he was. Uh, and um, he was a very famous neurosurgeon who pioneered the surgery, surgical treatment of epilepsy. So I, after a few years, I realized where I was. I actually, instead of staying just one year, I stayed on and did a PhD on EEG analysis. And uh, I started to work on automatic spike detection. And uh, this is when I published my first paper on automatic psych spike detection. I explained uh, the data that I had used. And then I started to receive letters, people wanting these data. This is when I send you the tape with, <laughs> uh, with the 10 minute, 10 patients, uh, two minutes from each patient uh, of EEG on one of these old uh, big magnetic tapes. Yes, yeah, I still remember looking at that tape. <laughs> yeah. So, so what else? Um, so, so let's go, keep going from there. I mean, and, well, and, and there. Tom Black told me that story of you with the French military. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was quite a coup. <laughs> it was quite a coup. And, yeah. and of course, I mean, and I, I uh, did my PhD there. I also met my wife, who um, was also doing a PhD at the Montreal Neurological Institute and in uh, neuropsychology and had come from the west coast of the U.S., and um, so we stayed in Montreal because it was kind of the meeting place for us. And uh, we've been there and still are both there ever since. So I've only really had one job in my life, essentially, <laughs> which is that at the Montreal Neurological Institute, where I was a, a student and a postdoc and a professor eventually. So I just continued in this field um, of EEG analysis and... Um, worked on various methods of automatic analysis and uh, then later became more interested in what you could do with automatic analysis, not only the analysis methods and got interested in the effect of medication on, on the EEG, which we could study because we had automatic spike detection and uh, because we could study the EEG over very long periods of time, which would not be possible without the methods of automatic detection. Things like this. So uh, this was in the uh, 80s, 70s, and, and uh, 80s. And uh, around that time, um, I started to... Uh, I love to walk uh, at night by myself and to take walks. And during some of these walks, I thought it would be fun to uh, start a company. And um, I, I was, you know, I was thinking of this as a kind of a little dream but not really thinking it would happen but thinking maybe one of these days I would start a company and then what happened was the uh, IBM PC appeared and uh, that kind of changed everything because before that everything had to be done with these gigantic so-called mini computers which were you know several cabinets of computers I had developed this program for automatic uh, spike detection, seizure detection, and spectral analysis. And some people who were trained at the Neurological Institute wanted to get these programs, and because they went away and opened the lab in the hospital somewhere far away, and they wanted to 
they told me, so how do I get these programs? And I said, well, you start by buying one of these computers for $100,000 and you get a programmer and then I can help you with our programs. And of course, this was overwhelming, although a couple of people did do that. But then when the PC came, it became a different story because then it became a lot more feasible to actually write software and for people to buy a PC and it was a completely different story. So that's when I actually eventually started my company in 1986, I think. Wow, I didn't realize it was that far back. That's amazing, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. You, you chose wisely on the PC route because we all yeah. know the history of, of, the, of DEC and the, yeah, the right. mini computers <laughs> almost overnight went out of business. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good decision there. And so, but, but when, when, this was Stellate, right? This, this was, was Stellate. Yeah. So it started Stellate yeah. in 19... The idea at the time, and I, I only sold software, uh, the idea was people could buy a PC and they would buy a board with an A to D converter in it, a standard board by made, I remember, by data translation. And um, I would sell them the software. And the only piece of hardware that I sold them was a cable because they needed a cable. The EEG machine, the old-fashioned EEG machine that, ran, uh, that uh, wrote on paper, had a high-level output so that people could collect the signal after it had been amplified onto equipment or other tapes or things like that. So we had to make them a cable that would go between the high-level output of the EEG machine and the A2D converter board. So we, I had a technician who uh, helped me with this, and uh, he made the cables on demand. We knew all the different EEG machines, and he made the cables. So we sold the cables and then a diskette. Uh, we had to make a protection for the software. So actually this technician helped me to make a key that plugged into the computer uh, printer port, I think, that had some special wiring and it was all embedded into epoxy so that you couldn't open it. <laughs> and if the key was not there, the software didn't run. Yeah. And if the key was there, then the software ran. So, and uh, I had my first exhibit at the meeting of the American Epilepsy Society, actually in 1986, it was the year I started the company. Um, I came from Montreal with a diskette and a key in my pocket, and I rented a computer in Seattle. The meeting was in Seattle, I remember very well. And the computer was delivered to my room in my hotel, and uh, I went to the booth and put my computer and put my software and showed my EEG analysis there. And... Um, it was a very strange feeling because people asked me how much it cost and I told them it was $1,900, which is the price I had made for this. Uh, it was primarily spectral analysis and topographic analysis. And people asked me if I had forgotten one or two zeros to my <laughs> price because at the same time you could buy machines that were made by Nicolet in these days to do so-called beam, beam analysis, which was a fancy topographic analysis, topographic map. And these machines cost about three or four hundred thousand yeah, dollars. I remember them very well. And Frank yeah. Duffy, you know, as well. That's right. right? <laughs> so this yeah, was the yeah. price of the machine. Yeah. So I was selling my software for nineteen hundred dollars and um, but it picked up uh, yeah. relatively quickly. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after some time, of course, we started to get into the um, the hardware uh, as well, because uh, it was a period of transition where actually people started to do EEG only with a computer, without the paper. So then we had to provide amplifiers and, um, and better screens, and so that they, 
you know, little by little became a digital EEG machine that we started to make. And we made the transition in the 90s to selling complete systems and eventually networks of systems and uh, complete uh, solutions for hospitals for monitoring, EEG monitoring and uh, EEG laboratories. And so the company started, I have to say, with a um, programmer who worked during the day in my bedroom. Not in my basement, but in my bedroom while my wife and I were both going to work. He came in and sat at the little PC that we had sitting on the table in our bedroom. And then the, when, the, when they had more than one person, then we moved them to the basement. And we had one large room in the basement and there were up to three people working in the company. And I kept being, as you said, I was a scientist, so I actually went to work at the Neurological Institute every day. Uh, while the company was going and I was taking care of it at night or early in the morning. And um, after it grew to more than three people, then we had to get space outside. So then we went to a real office and uh, the company just kept growing. And then we sold, you know, in, in North America and then in Europe and essentially all around the world after a while. And, and, and did you raise the prices? We did raise the prices, yeah. <laughs> well, after a while, of course, we stopped selling just software sure. and then yeah, we yeah. start, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we sold good, yeah. complete equipment. Yeah, and that's yeah. an amazing story. And I, I remember those days in that um, you're always sort of limited by the, the power in the PCs. And, right. and fortunately, that was growing by, growing you know, every, every year there was something faster and newer. And, faster. And, yeah, and, then, and the screen was important is the yeah. screens got better and better because right, the resolution right. was not great at the beginning. Right, yeah. right, right. And, and they I, had the EGA and the VGA and the right, whatever. Right. Yeah. And I remember that transition from paper to uh, computers didn't go easy in the EEG world. I, I mean, there were people that were a little reluctant to, to make that switch. And then there was just a time where it, 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 went, it, it went. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. just like any yeah. technology. It was interesting because uh, uh, Pierre Gluer, who was my mentor and who was a very well-known neurophysiologist and electroencephalographer, um, immediately realized when he saw uh, uh, the potential of digital EEG, when I started to show him EEGs on the screen and I could tell him, you know, you can stretch the time scale, you can change the amplitude, you can change the montage, you can change the filters, and immediately picked up on that and said, this is fantastic and this is much better than paper, and he dropped the paper very quickly and wanted all his EEGs on the screen because of these abilities. And uh, so that really encouraged me. Um, but you're right that not everybody did that and many people were didn't think the quality was good enough to be uh, the paper was of better quality and which was very illusory just because it was written with a nice pen uh, did not make it of intrinsically better yeah. quality yeah. signal but but i mean and storage was another issue because uh, you know that's we know yeah. what it is today but back then uh, it wasn't that cheap <laughs> yeah well this and, is uh, actually yeah. the, you know this is the reason that i started to do spike detection and seizure detection because we started to have the ability to record the patient for several days but we didn't have the ability to store the eeg for several days there was no way we could store it so the only way we could record for several days was to record in a discontinuous fashion so what we used to do is to record maybe 20 seconds every five minutes to have a sample of how the interictal EEG was. And then we had a two minute buffer 
in the computer so that when the patient or the nurse saw a seizure, they would push a button and then we would dump the two minutes before the push button and two minutes after and hopefully the seizure was in there somewhere. But then we missed all the interictal activity, we missed on all the seizures for which nobody pressed a button because nobody saw it because this was not recorded. If there was not a push button, nothing was recorded except these occasional samples. So that's why we needed the spike detection, the seizure detection, so that you could add to these random samples, samples that were taken more intelligently uh, because they had spikes or seizures. Lots of false detections, of course, as well, but uh, still reduced the amount of data, uh, you know, from 24 hours to one hour with a high probability of interesting things in them. Yeah. yeah. Then, so let's so, keep going. So let's. So, <laughs> so I know. Uh, I I know the history of Stellate, and I you know very successful company, and um, you know a company that people really bonded with. I think a lot of that was was you being being the uh, founder. And to, how did you separate the the scientific life from the business life, and um, how did that go? Well, you know, before I started my company, I don't know. If, Probably you don't know um, Reginald Bickford. Does the name ring very, a bell? Very you well. Yeah. You know, you know, okay. <laughs> sure. The CSA, so, he taught yes, me everything right. I know about that. <laughs> well, so he started a company himself yeah. uh, much before I did in the, in the 70s. And it was based on a PDP-11 on a cart, yeah, yeah. which uh, did the CSA. And what he told me, because I was very interested, I had not started my company, but I was interested because I was an engineer and I thought maybe one day. Anyway, what he said is that don't start a company if you want to retain your scientific credibility. And if you start a company, you will lose your credibility in science. And I pondered that for a while. And when I started my company, I thought, I don't want to lose my scientific credibility. I never wanted to stop being a scientist. And I thought I will make the gamble that I will be able to somehow manage to uh, continue to be a scientist and uh, have a company and run a business. And I'm not very sure what I did, but it's, you know, without being uh, presumptuous, uh, it, it worked in the sense that I did retain my scientific credibility. And then I continued after I sold the company. And um, and I think we built a company that had also some credibility in the commercial world and, and that people uh, liked. I think that um, maybe one of the reasons for that uh, possibility was that the company itself made equipment that was geared toward scientific usage. And so, and we never sold our equipment for that much money. It wasn't more expensive than others. I think people felt it was a good deal and had some scientific sides. People liked it because, of course, I knew what to put in the machine that could be useful to people who are interested in clinical research. And at the same time, I kept publishing papers which uh, were not based on the company, were independent of what the software could do and things like that. So. Somehow I managed uh, to retain the credibility, the scientific credibility, which was a great relief to me because I was anxious about that and I really did not want to, uh, to lose that. Um, so I don't really have a uh, recipe for that, but um, I think, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, no recipe, but you've shown it, at least it can be done, which, yeah, which I, I think would inspire other people uh, uh, to, to maybe not... Um, 
go the way Reg Bickford was suggesting. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I think today yeah. it's the world has changed completely because yeah, yeah. now it has become very uh, fashionable and almost uh, you know very much a plus if a scientist can get involved in a company. But I have to say that when I started, it was what Reginald Bickford was saying, which is that it was not considered well by the scientist. And I did sure. not go around in the scientific meetings to to tell everybody that I had a company. I did not hide it. I told the chairman of my department. I told my colleagues. But it was absolutely not a plus in my CV. My CV for questions of promotions, there was never any mention that I had a company because yeah, yeah. this was... Uh, People didn't really look at me negatively, but there was absolutely no positive side with respect to my scientific career, unlike what it is today. You yeah. know. And uh, Stellate was actually the first spin-off of McGill University. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah. Cool. And, you know, we actually gave a lot of royalties. I think over all the years of Stellate, I think the company gave something like $1.3 or $1.4 million to the university in royalties wow. because wow. we used the... The, the uh, methods that I had developed with research grants at the yeah, university. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now every university has a, uh, a department that does technology transfer. transfer and, that's right. And yeah. uh, tons of lawyers. And <laughs> there was one person in there who was working part-time on this question yeah, and yeah, didn't yeah. know what to do right, and right. how to make an agreement. And, right, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting, yeah. So, so, so I have a question. When... Um, you know, in those early days that I certainly remember, I was very involved in the, the small computer sort of revolution. I, I knew um, a, lot of the, a lot of the big names. I started a computer company, a computer uh, club in Philadelphia. And so, you know, Bill Gates came to visit us. And it was in the very early days. And I met Steve Jobs when he was selling the Apple II at a little table and all that. And it's like in the, it, back then, it, what we were just talking about, the technology really pace the the EEG development so you know memory we talked about and all that it it seems now if you so so let's go forward to today today it seems like there's technology the technology's gone way past what we're really using in EEG I mean I, I think and and I, I don't know but I mean all the you you look at other areas of medicine or technology with you know machine learning and all that and how it solves some problems and voice recognition and all that we're getting into that right now, but are, are we are we use, fully utilizing the technology, or or do we need to grow into it? Is it there? <laughs> so. Yeah, I I have to agree that there has not been very much progress in terms of EEG and EEG analysis, particularly in the context of this tremendous computing power that has become available. Uh, what we do today with an EEG machine. And uh, the, I mean, the computer-based EEG machine is not very different from what we did 30 years ago. We don't have the problem of space for storage and the screens are better resolution, but what we do with them is pretty much the same. We record them and then we look at them to a large degree. And the automatic detection methods are not particularly better than what they were 20 years ago. So it is a little distressing. I think one reason is that industry and I'm sad to say, after uh, Stellate closed, um, industry has not invested in research uh, in, in the field of EEG. Now, academics, of course, have developed some interesting methods. There was a big push, maybe 15 years ago, in the area of seizure prediction. 
And that required a lot of computing power with the methods that were used and the computers that were used at the time. And then that proved largely a failure. Uh, nobody was really able to detect, to predict, to predict seizures, even though there was some great hopes at the beginning. And then there has not been very much. Uh, now there is a resurgence, I think, in the very last uh, few years. And everybody is jumping on the bandwagon of the uh, artificial intelligence and deep learning and uh, convolution networks and all these things, which require a lot of computing power. And so now we're, you know, really making use of the available computing power. Uh, the results are not strikingly exciting. And uh, I, I think one of the problems is that the EEG community remains a small community. And, uh, you know, for, for these deep learning algorithms to work, you need a very large amount of labeled data, you know, right, where right. you have marked what the events are that you want to detect. And we don't really have that um, at this point, not very much, although there are some papers that are now coming out with, I think, uh, realistic detection of epileptic spikes as one example. Um, that has a performance that is really similar to that of humans, um, of uh, human interpreters, and using this deep learning algorithm. So I'm not crazy about the, this whole field of deep learning myself. That's probably because I'm a little old-fashioned, but I don't like the black box concept. Um, I don't like to know that, you know, I can detect it, but I don't know how. And if the if the detection method does not work very well, I cannot improve it except making a bigger one without really understanding what I'm improving. So I'm, it's intellectually, I don't find it very satisfactory, but it does work very often. And I think um, it, may, uh, it may affect the EEG world if the EEG community is able to put itself together and produce large databases of, of labeled uh, data, but it has to pull together, which it has not done compared to the uh, imaging, for instance, sure, world. Right. And uh, so the, that community is a little bit behind, I think. Well, hopefully we'll see some changes in that in the future. Yeah, Maybe I think they will come that. soon. Yeah, 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 I think, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, the extension of EEG into other areas like Alzheimer's and some of the other diseases, maybe that will... Uh, the Neurocritical Care Society is working on uh, trying to investigate coma. I mean, what is coma? And they have a project called Curing Coma. And maybe as we extend the uh, the breadth of the applications, maybe we'll get so, some uh, more funding and, and uh, people yeah. working on that. Yeah, I think that the um, the uh, world of EEG is expanding. I mean, there, there was, if we go back in history, there was a period where in my view, in the 80s um, and late 70s, the EEG was really going downhill rapidly after we started to get CT scanners and MRI scanners, and um, people really large lost interest in EEG, and I was a little discouraged. But um, there's a tremendous resurgence uh, of interest now, and uh, lots of uh, studies and cognitive studies and medical-oriented, you know, coma and intensive care monitoring, apart from epilepsy and um, particularly in the study of cognitive disorders I think so there there's lots of avenues opening and I think maybe with these new methods um, we will find some interesting results I mean EEG remains a unique 
uh, approach to the study of the brain, you know, and um, there's nothing like it, and uh, nothing new has come that replaces it in any way, as far as I can tell. Right, know. right. Yeah. So I think there's hope yeah. for the future. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to... Um, it's funny. I, I when you when you said you were having tea with Wilder Penfield and didn't know who he was, I, I have a similar story. I was uh, when I was a freshman at Penn, there was a very attractive woman, and I went out on a date with her. We were talking um, and about each other, and she knew I was interested, and in, she found out I was interested in the brain, and she said, "Oh, my grandfather um, worked in that area." And this was Wilder Penfield's granddaughter. Oh, really? Oh, well. <laughs> I had a day with her, and I didn't even know. And I just read his book that summer. You know? <laughs> and so one of the books, so a similar well, so story. So we have another connection. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Good, yeah. Well, this has been okay. great. This has been really wonderful. Thanks for taking the time to uh, share these stories. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people will uh, be really fascinated by it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was fun to uh, remember some of these things, which kind of are hidden behind my, in my brain somewhere, yeah, right. I, stories I don't think about all the time. Yeah, well, I'm glad we could get them out of there. That's good. Well, thank you thank so you. much. That's good. So thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoy these interviews, please take a moment to rate and review this show on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe to Dick Moberg's Neural Network to receive notifications when future installments are available. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Moberg Research, Inc. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again soon.